Hello, my name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Bill Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about Robert Downey Sr., a prince. A record scratch. Yes, that's right. We are not talking about Chaplin himself, Robert Downey Jr. We are instead talking about his father, the famous or the once famous underground filmmaker somebody who rode new york's avant-garde film scene like a colossus in the mid to late 60s and early 70s wow two whole decades (laughs) (laughs) and someone whose critical reputation has ebbed and flowed over the years i think he was for a while long forgotten he in the 80s and 90s made some kind of bad comedies but his reputation got a bit of a jolt about a decade ago when Criterion put out a box set of a number of his early films through their Eclipse label and Vinegar Syndrome recently did a beautiful Blu-ray edition of his magnum opus the one that everyone likes Putney Swope. Robert Downey Sr. is a guy that I saw Putney Swoped. I liked it And I don't think I revisited any of his other films because most people would say, oh, no, those aren't good. But we decided to dive in because maybe all of those people are wrong. Well, about 10 years ago, I had myself a little Robert Downey Sr. marathon when the Eclipse box set came out. I watched all those films. I watched Babo 73, Chafed Elbows, No More Excuses. uh, And I can't remember what I thought of them. Maybe they were so good that you forgot them because then you couldn't enjoy other entertainment. But here's the thing. I also, about 10 years ago, dipped into his later career. I saw his final fiction film, Hugo Pool, starring Alyssa Milano. In some circles, his most famous film, Up the Academy, the sole feature film venture of Mad Magazine. That's the only reason it's famous, is that, whoa, Mad Magazine tried to rip off National Lampoons and they made a movie? And Robert Downey Sr. does have a bit of a cult reputation. Paul Thomas Anderson is a big fan, for example. In fact, you can see Robert Downey Sr. in the movie Boogie Nights doing a cameo as the owner of the record studio where Dirk Diggler records his album. Also, the character of Buck Swope, played by Don Cheadle, is named after Putney. I also know that the late Louis C.K. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> cited Putney Swope as one of his greatest artistic inspirations, and it was a huge influence on his film Pootie Tang. Uh, so he definitely has fans. I mean, a man who makes a film that everybody enjoys, like Putney Swope, how could he have an entire career of films that are not as good as Putney Swope? I suggested this topic. I went into this week expecting and wanting to love Robert Downey Sr. I th- uh, My memory of these early films to the extent that I had a memory of them, was that they were fun and anarchic. And, uh, you know, imagine, okay, you were in lower Manhattan in the 1960s, and you were going to the underground film landscape, and you are uh, just getting a little tired of seeing abstract and geometric forms on the screen. You're a little tired of Stan Brackage. Oh, do I have to stare at this person's face for another hour? (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to watch the Empire State Building for eight hours. Maybe you want to have a little bit of fun. And here come these movies, very influenced by like the Marx Brothers, very mad magazine in their sense of humor, off the wall, anarchic, the kind of movies that you might uh, smoke something before you go see them. So what you're trying to do is set the stage of these movies are played within the context of 
people not having many laughs, watching some Stan Brackage, and then boom, you get something like uh, Chafed Elbows, and woo, there's actual jokes in these movies, which makes them a hundred times funnier. I watched four movies this week, and Chafed Elbows, which is one of the early ones, is I think the second best of the ones I saw. Do you want to tell the people what Chafed Elbows is? I mean, Chafed Elbows is the day in the life of a young Manhattanite who's in love with his mother, he gives birth to money, he's having a a breakdown and the film is mostly composed of still frames like Lajerty and sub Marx Brothers style uh, pattern. It's mostly composed uh, of still frame images but also there's there's some color footage there's some black and white footage there's some songs it's just very silly kind of stream of consciousness run on sentence stuff it opens with a big incest joke him in bed with his mother incest jokes recur throughout the film as well as many other jokes of bad taste he's breaking taboos <laughs> there's no plot to speak of it's as you said very stream of consciousness just one gag after another many pop culture references one thing i'll say in this movie's favor is it's 58 minutes long in the version that's on the criterion channel and when this came out people could watch it on a double bill with kenneth anger scorpio rising 58 minutes if if he could have shorn 50 minutes off that i think i would have liked it a little better (laughs) (laughs) 50 minutes i mean look um if you saw this on a bed sheet in 1966 in somebody's basement i think that you would have a pretty good time so the things that are uh, to its advantage is it is breaking taboos like it's like i can't believe they're talking about this and also that it reminds you of stuff like the Marx Brothers. But then you could be watching a Marx Brothers movie. Watching these Robert Downey Sr. movies, I definitely kept getting the feeling of like, there's nothing here that Duck Soup or, you know, a W.C. Fields movie didn't do better. I mean, that's not to compare every comedy to them, but what is Robert Downey Sr. bringing to the medium that is like, oh, we should continue talking about this kind of well, stuff. Well, yeah, as you said, he's breaking taboos. And... Okay, let let me raise this to you. Some months ago, we did an episode on 20 years later, a movement that came out of Lower Manhattan, the cinema of transgression. People like Nick Zed, uh, Richard Kurd, who also did like eight millimeter provocations. I don't know. I, I, uh, maybe this is just a matter of personal preference. That stuff, that transgressive stuff kind of hit me where I live a little bit more than this stuff. Well, that stuff is even more in your face and it's still powerful if you watch it now. Well, you watch something like Chafed Elbows, you're like, eh, this feels pretty tame. Like a poor episode of Family Guy. Yeah, I mean, is that later stuff, the Nick said stuff, is it more powerful just because it like goes a step further to places that we're still uncomfortable with that stuff? Whereas here, yeah, you're right. It is basically an episode of Family. No, it's not even an episode of Family Guy, this stuff. <laughs> People are listening to this like throwing desks like so angry. I actually do feel bad about that because we've gotten a lot of listeners over the years who like discover us because they search their favorite niche filmmaker on iTunes and then they hear us. And so I do feel bad digging up Robert Downey Sr just to bury him again. But we did enjoy Putney Swope. Yeah, Putney Swope's fun. (laughs) Even that, like, I could live without it, but it's fun. I mean, so Putney Swope (laughs) is about a uh, black man. The only one on the executive board is suddenly given control of a whole advertising firm, and he decides to make some really weird commercials. Again, like Chafed Elbows, very stream of consciousness. When you watch it now, you feel like, oh, I've seen how this has been kind of evolved and used in different formats. He becomes the chairman of the board because the previous CEO, and by the way, this is like a big 
Madison Avenue advertising agency, one of the biggest. In fact, the uh, the poster tagline of the film was up Madison Avenue, and it was like a middle finger. Some real ad buster stuff right there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know what? Robert Downey Sr. would agree with you. In the interviews on the Vinegar Syndrome disc, he's like, ah, this isn't very funny. Like, it doesn't measure up to any satire that you could do now. Straight from the horse's mouth. But anyway, yeah, Putney becomes the head of the company because everybody else on the board votes for him in the secret vote and they all vote for him because they think nobody else will when he takes over he decides he's really going to take charge he fires everyone from the board and replaces them with black people he changes the name of the company to truth and soul inc he puts limits on the kind of products that he'll that he'll advertise so no alcohol no tobacco no no nothing that markets violence towards kids and much of the movie is taken up with commercial parodies parodying the kinds of commercials that were popular at the time but always taking it a step further like a lot of nudity, a lot of sex jokes, a lot of, uh, you know, various uh, stuff that would be transgressive to your grandfather. Breaking those taboos! It's sort of fun. I like the anarchic spirit of the film. Um, I mean, the fact that Putney eventually becomes this tyrannical, dictatorial style guy, you know, like every white liberal's worst nightmare of the Black Panthers, indicates that the, like, the satiric point of view of it is sort of all over the place. It's what you'd call an equal opportunity opportunity offender <laughs> and you do have the uh, principal character played by arnold johnson dubbed by robert downey senior which is funny kind of kind of problematic as well unless you write your thesis about what that means you know isn't that what uh sorry to bother you would then utilize as well <laughs> speaking of a recent film it gives the film kind of a brechtian quality doesn't it the fact that the protagonist of the movie is so clearly dubbed by somebody from a different race putting on a voice to talking like this the entire time well you know what like father like son so i think that what me and will are coming down to is that these movies what's interesting about them is that they are doing the uh you know a anarchic style of comedy that has existed forever in Hollywood. It's just, it's doing it, breaking taboos and also doing it at 0.25 speed. <laughs> and it's also doing it in a different context. It's like, it's doing it in the underground, like the Marx Brothers, WC Fields, whatever. That stuff was the mainstream. And this is like the Robert Rauschenberg pop art painting of that kind of comedy, right? Like, it's repurposing it and saying, well, the, this can be art, too. I think that you've been interested in Robert Downey Sr. because you, you have that attachment to the 60s art scene, right? Yeah, I think so. I definitely like the spirit of those times. But all those people became corrupt and terrible as they lived on through their lives. Uh, did they? I mean, people like Brackage and... Um, oh, that's right, Brackage. Jonas Mikas, I think they all kind of, like, continued to fight the good fight uh, in their career. Um, I mean, some of them... I mean, I guess Andy Warhol... Would would go on to like paint society paintings for $25,000 a pop or whatever it was. I guess that's probably what I, I start to veer towards is that like all these idealistic breaking the system filmmakers found that, oh, wow, people are actually interested in this. This can become something that is culturally important. I can sell it to the highest bidder and live in giant mansions. Well, here's what I'll say for Robert Downey Sr. in the early portion of his career. Later on, I think he tried to sell out unsuccessfully. But the stuff that he was making in the early 70s, I watched 
uh, two of his bids for the mainstream, 1970's Pound and 1972's Greaser's Palace. And they are definitely uh, spiky and uncompromising in their way. And by that, I mean, they are unwatchable. I also feel something like Greaser's Palace is very calculated to like, wait, can we get a mo- uh, cult movie like El Topo out there? This is what the kids like, Yeah, right? you're right. It is very calculated. Okay, well, let's start with Pound. This is one that I watched. It's based on an off, 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 off Broadway play. The gimmick of it is that it's set at a dog pound but all the dogs are played by human actors. And so like in the opening scene, you go into the pound, you see a bunch of dogs there, and then like with the cut of a camera, suddenly they're replaced by people and and all the people are talking to each other like they're dogs, but they're talking to each other in human speak. Ultimately, the film is a big metaphor. It's a metaphor for us and how we live our lives. And aren't we all really just dogs at the pound? Because these dogs are waiting to be exterminated. They are strays that nobody is going to pick up and they're like on the conveyor belt to death basically are there a lot of laughs will oh my god i felt like i was in prison watching this film for for 90 minutes that's what it was meant to feel like it felt like you were trapped in a pound yourself god um yeah i definitely had time to ponder my own existence while watching this (laughs) the choices you've made watching pound i mean oh my god i definitely wouldn't have finished it if I wasn't doing a podcast about it, and maybe I shouldn't have finished it, but you've got all of these characters. First of all, the central visual conceit of the movie doesn't work. The sight gag doesn't work. They don't look or act like dogs. They look like people. They talk like people. They interact like people. Every now and then, one of them will allude to like having like bit someone or done this or that. But for the most part, no. They just look like a lot of people, and the whole dog gimmick doesn't meaningfully interact with them. And then they're not interesting, and there are too many of them, and I didn't laugh a single time. Well, so Pound has been forgotten by history, other than being like, oh yeah, Robert Downey Sr.'s follow-up to Putney Swope was a movie where people were talking. Oh, wait a minute. There is one thing that is remembered about this movie. Debut of Robert Downey Jr. That's right. He's like five years old. He plays a little dog who is briefly there. You know, he's a cute kid. And uh, what more do you say about it? Oh, I didn't mention that halfway through the movie, there's like uh, a freak out scene, like all the dogs like have a big like mosh pit party where they all dance and like hippy dippy music is playing while they're dancing. Oh, God. And I <laughs> wanted to put a gun to my head and pull the trigger <laughs> during this. Well, now you've watched it. And every time that you try to go revisit it, you can just, you know, think about those memories. Yeah. You know, 20 years from now, I guarantee I'm like, like an Alzheimer's patient. I'm going to put this on. I'm like, yeah, pass. Robert Downey Sr., he's like a real, like, cool, uh, avant-garde guy. He he was anarchic. I'll forget the awful experience I had Criterion's with Criterion's gonna turn around and be like, Pound's on Blu-ray now! Okay, Greaser's Palace. We both watched yep, this one. Yes, we did, because this was like his big kind of swing for the fences, I feel. The one that forever put him on a path of Mad Magazine up the Academy. <laughs> okay. Well, it is a comic retelling of the life of Christ. <laughs> comic. Well, I, I don't know what else you'd call it. It's set in the Old West. Imagine Imagine if Louis Benwell was not smart. Ooh. Or, yeah, if Alejandro Jodorowsky didn't know how to make a movie. Well, the thing about Alejandro Jodorowsky's movie is that they're fairly engaging when you watch them, and that there's a lot of stuff to kind of glom onto. Greaser's Palace's main kind of gag is just shooting people. Also, El Topo is genuinely transgressive. There's a lot of, like, really weird and unsettling imagery in that movie. And it's also put within the context, El Topo, of, like, a West.
Western or a quest film that you recognize. And that's what gives it its power when they turn around and they do the really kind of like disturbing stuff in El Topo. I'll tell you a little bit more about the plot. It's set in this Western town, which is ruled over with an iron fist by a saloon owner by the name of Seaweed Head Greaser. But then one day out of nowhere, a mysterious man named Jesse literally parachutes into town. That's right, folks. He parachutes into town and he's wearing a zoot suit. And he's got a big mustache and a hat. I'm laughing already. <laughs> he's got the ability to heal the sick. He can resurrect the dead. He can walk on water at one point. But he claims that he's on his way to Jerusalem merely to become a song and dance man. Oh, man. I'm looking at a summary here online. And I really hope this was used in the press material somewhere. This ain't your father's Bible story. Oh, no. So that's basically the plot. Uh, it's a collection of scenes. Uh, some of them reoccur, like there's bits that go on throughout, like there's a woman in the desert that keeps being injured. That made me laugh. But to give you an idea of the general level of humor in the movie, Hervé Villachez is in this movie. Uh, some listeners may know him as the little person from The Man with the Golden Gun and TV's Fantasy Island. Ah, uh, Forbidden uh, Zone, Will, his most famous role. Anyway, he's in this movie, and of course his presence is intrinsically humorous because he's a little person. Oh man, Robert Downey Sr. loves little people showing up in his movies. He loves people in drag, too. Yeah, he he really likes that. Ugh, God. And if you got Hervé Villachez, whose wife is a cross-dressing man, you got laughs for days. And those scenes go on and on but what is keeping this will from being anti-comedy that it pushes it so far that that's what generates the laughs what's keeping it from being anti-comedy is not at any moment do i feel riveted by this movie i want to question the phrase anti-comedy because if it's funny it's funny but like putting that aside just accepting the the term on its own like if you hear norm mcdonald at his best if you see tim and eric at their best you're kind of like on the edge of your seat waiting like how long how long can he push this? There's like, there's a discipline to it. There's a rigor to it. You listen to Neil Hamburger doing 50 horrible jokes to a crowd of like screaming people who want the rock show to start. Like there's an element of suspense. Like how long can he get away with this? Like, is the crowd going to revolt? He didn't feel like that way. Watching Greaser's Palace and Pound. How long can he get away with this? I mean, if Robert Downey Sr. was in front of me while I was watching it, I would have felt it because I would have been wanting to fucking get up and throttle him. (laughs) Now you sound like one of those old grandpas who just got back from World War II. Don't understand what the kids are doing. I should say that like this podcast that we do is unfair to these filmmakers because these filmmakers were not meant to be binged the way that we do it. Like if if I'm watching Robert Downey Sr. movies one every three years as they're coming out, then that would be one thing. Yeah, but then you'd go to them and you're like, I like Putney Swell. Maybe this one will be good. Mm, No, wasn't good. (laughs) I'll see the next one, I guess. And yeah, the experience would be less intense. But when when you're immersed in this guy and you're watching like four of his movies like one after another over three or four days wow they ain't getting any better Uh, you know what i have to say to be a little bit more positive i liked the look of greaser's palace how miserable it looked there were some jokes that made me laugh like there's a long shot of them walking and someone does a magic trick and he's like is this your card no is this your card no is this your card no is this your card? No. That got a laugh out of me. At the end, a guy uh, finally shits and then the whole building explodes. But I mean, I don't think the man knows where to put the camera. I don't think he's very talented as an editor, as a pictorialist, as anything. Slap a wide angle on that camera, do it handheld, and it feels like nothing else that's coming out during uh, the time, right? 
I think that's what Putney Swope gets a, a lot of drive on. Like, that's why Babo 73 and Chafed Elbows are some of the better movies in his filmography. Because, like, if you just got an 8mm camera and you're going over to Taylor Mead's apartment, you're going to dick around for an hour and you've got a movie. Like, that's where his talent thrives, such as it is. Not not when he's, like, actually has to expand his craft at all. So you think that when there's more immediacy to the work that he was doing, so, like, the earlier work that it feels more personal, but when he has to sit down and calculate and get through it, that's where he has difficulty with like pound or greaser's palace. I think the early work has an urgency to it. If you want to be, if you want to be generous to it, it definitely has a feeling of like flying by the seat of your pants there's some inventiveness there's some energy but once he has to like translate his sense of humor into anything with a budget you realize how lame his sense of humor is and how poor his technical skills are watching greaser's palace i was like man i was i wish i was watching el topo or life of brian or any better version of this it only gets better from here (laughs) aren't you glad that we didn't take a look at some of those later ones like you and i watched the trailer to too much sun oh gosh do you think the too much sun barrett's mentioning because here's the plot of this movie a wealthy man dies and in his will he gives all of his fortune to his children played by eric idol and andrea martin but he specifies that they can only get his fortune if they sire a child and his two kids are gay so shenanigans abound these two gay people have to figure out how to get a kid and you've got eric idol in full like hate speech mode you know doing like the swishiest gay voice you've ever heard see the thing with like this movie is i feel like someone like robert downey senior would be like "Ah, i'm breaking taboos like i always did it's like no this is what is text now in mainstream culture like this is not breaking any taboos Uh, it looks so bad too his later ones just had this awful like ah uh, i don't know what what am i doing why am i why am i beating up on these later movies (laughs) robert downey senior is like i haven't directed a film in decades what are you doing to me will (laughs) Up the Academy, though. That's a funny one, right? Uh, I, d- I did see that one. I don't remember much about it. I mean, what I remember about Up the Academy is in the opening credits and at the end, there is like Alfred E. Newman is in it. Like there's a kind of That's like... That's the man I came to see. <laughs> it's like, you know, at Disneyland when somebody's wearing a Mickey Mouse costume. It's like that, but for Alfred E. Newman. Oh my God, a walk around Newman. <laughs> Scary. All right. So Robert Downey uh, Sr., Basically, uh, we would recommend watch Putney Swope. Yeah, watch Putney Swope. And you know what? If you got an hour to kill, watch Chafed Elbows. Why not? Mm -hmm. Basically, just pick up that Criterion Eclipse box set. They knew what they were doing. Putney Swope is pretty fun. The other early ones, they are interesting time capsules of a time and a place. After 1970... No, thank you. Yeah, no, nothing from Pound onward. Not even Robert Downey Sr.'s America in 1986 or Rented Lips, where a documentary director has to make, what's this, a porno? <laughs> you know, but I think that it's interesting is that like Zaz is essentially what Robert Downey Sr. was doing and he just could never get there. Get to that like Kentucky Fried movie level. It's because he wasn't funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. He didn't know how to do a joke. All right. Well, there you have it. Paul Thomas Anderson is going to come after you himself. <laughs> all right. Sorry, everyone. Sorry to all the fans who are listening to this for the first time. Please stick around. Listen to our other, other episodes. There will be stuff that you agree with. I would love to, uh, someone to send us a defense of Up the Academy. I would be heartbroken if Robert Downey Sr. himself somehow heard this. I mean, he would agree with you that Up the Academy is not good. As he said in an interview that I watched, it should have been 10-year-olds. And I'm like, I don't think that would have made it fun 
funnier, Robert. He seems like a nice man. He's very funny in interviews. Yeah, he is. He is. And yeah, what can you so, say? So as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, Dear Justin and Will, huge fan of the podcast. Over the past year, the Cinema Club has provided invaluable inspiration for how to keep me and my five-year-old son entertained, largely outside of the confines of Disney Plus and Netflix. Uh-oh. At this point for his bedtime stories, we've shifted to making them up. And mostly thanks to you two, it's been the ongoing tale of how the Three Stooges and Calvin and Hobbes teamed up to take on Gamera. <laughs> Part of me worries such an anti-normie media diet might backfire, the worst case scenario being that he grows up to be a Roberta from Cinemania, but there's only so much I can control. <laughs> Oh, man, that's a good deep cut reference. Uh, as long as that's not the only thing that your children take in, because I have friends that are like, I'm not letting my kids see anything but the stuff that I like as kids. That is a bad idea. You have to let your kids watch the horrible garbage that all their school children are watching, because those are the things that unite a generation. Yeah, they should be watching stuff like Scooby-Doo quality cartoons. Uh, the letter continues. Would love to get your thoughts on the works of Ray Harryhausen. I've only gotten around to his stuff courtesy of my kiddo, the first two Sinbad movies in particular. In fact, given the choices between Star Wars and Sinbad, he prefers the latter. <laughs> and I don't think he's not off base. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Those Ray Harryhausen have really fun claymation sequences. Yeah, the, I would agree with that. Um, they've all got 15 great minutes. Uh, could be worth diving into his filmography for an episode or at least a Patreon. There's more than a few questions. I'd also be curious if you have answers to. How do you explain brown face to a five-year-old? <laughs> is it okay not to point it out as long as the characters are depicted with dignity? Is mild bloodless violence somehow worse than somehow visceral like Harryhausen? When heroes fall, you hear their agonized wails and crunching bones. Why are the films of many of those he influenced in the West, or Lucas, Tim Burton, Peter Jackson, so asexual? While with Harryhausen, you can count on at least one character being a horn dog. Anyway, would love your thoughts, if only so I can make a better argument to my in-laws why it's okay for my kids to be watching this instead of Sesame Street. Keep up the great work, Andrew. Oh gosh, well I don't have any kids and I was kind of relishing the fact that I didn't have to explain brown face or stuff like that to them, but now I see that uh, this kind listener has outsourced his parental responsibilities to me, so... (laughs) To us two childless men. (laughs) Two white childless men. I think you would explain brown face to your kid. Like you would explain any of that. You'd say, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, maybe, maybe they didn't think it was racist at the time but they you know we it's it's frowned upon now and it's and it's it is harmful in its way. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. I would just say it's bad. It was bad then. They knew it was bad. Yeah, okay. But they wouldn't get in trouble for it. Also, you can like things that have bad parts about it. The problem is that a lot of people, especially through the internet, their identities are the stuff they like. And if anything of it is taken into question, they're like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> no, it's bad. You can tell your kid that it's bad. Like these elements are bad. No, you're, you're right. I don't know why I was qualifying it. I think I think I was, I think I was qualifying it only because like... Like, it was the whole, like, treated with dignity question, which threw a bit of a wrench into it for me. But yeah, you can tell them it's bad, even though they thought they were doing it with dignity. And, I mean, did your parents ever broach that topic? Because I know mine didn't. I can't remember. I mean, I think I understood from a pretty young age that blackface was heavily frowned upon. I'm not sure where I learned that, though. Um, I think it I think it seemed pretty obvious to me. That- I know that no teacher... Or any parent ever told me that. I wonder if that's different now. And those, I mean, those conversations have to be had, right? I think I probably became aware of blackface through like 
cartoons because every now and then on one of those public domain vhs tapes you'd get one of those cartoons like bugs bunny and blackface and you'd, you'd like what probably happened was i would ask i asked my mom or dad like why does bugs bunny look like that right now Yeah, i'm trying to think of when i actually became aware of it as something that was really bad considering that there was never any discussion in any position of authority because i used to read like tintin comics and whoa boy tintin goes to the congo yikes <laughs> like those are not good and those were just in libraries never discussed upon yeah i don't know but i think that i guess entertainment dealt with it enough that i became aware of it and like oh this is bad and i never fought against it being like well i grew up with this it wasn't a problem then why is it a problem now yeah what is your position on violence um i'm in favor of it for for me yeah i love it um but for, <laughs> for children yeah i guess you should you shouldn't show them anything well i mean but he actually asked an interesting question is is it worse to see something like harryhausen where when the people die they're screaming and you hear sound effects or is it like seeing I blood don't know and i i would imagine that it varies from child to child because you remember I, I remember when I was a child, I would sometimes get scared at the most arbitrary things. From what I've heard of some friends who have kids, like, I think the discussion is the most important part of like kind of parsing entertainment as you watch it and not treating it as like a monolith. Because like Will just said, kids react to different things you know, all the time differently. Like, I mean, every kid my age, when they saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit, scared the shit out of them. There's some scary stuff in that movie that's, it's bloodless, like Judge Doom being rolled over by a steamroller. But oh man, that gave me nightmares for weeks. But also kids sometimes like being scared, which create, which is a very difficult tightrope to walk, isn't it? I think that there's a difference between like, when I was a kid, violence, when I would see it, seemed like a big deal. Like, I remember seeing Broken Arrow, and I'm like, man, so violent. And I would say that maybe the normalization of it is probably more of an issue. If you're an adult and you're like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. You just take it in. Where, like, it needs to feel, I don't know, man, it's tough. I don't have kids and how they react to stuff. I mean, there are a lot of people who would say that, like, the bloodless slaughter of a, a oh, movie like Star worse, Wars yes. is worse morally because there it makes violence seem like it has no implications. I'm trying to think of when I was a kid, like, uh, I would, like, G.I. Joe is more toxic, like, fighting with laser guns, join the army. That stuff is, gets under the skin of a child and becomes like a goal that they want to do because it's something that they associate with you know entertainment when they're growing up like all those call of duty games you know playing on your computer it's fun let me join the army now yeah yeah why are films sexless well people are terrified of sex still to this day and yet cable tv dramas are full of sex but i remember reading there was like an article someone said that's like i made a tv safe version of uh game of thrones where i cut out all the nudity but kept in all the violence so my kids can watch it and as somebody pointed out they were like how is that better though <laughs> like how is violence better than sex and they were like i, I don't know it just is and i think that's the way like society has kind of like sculpted our minds up to this point i'm also not sure i mean i, I mentioned that there's so much sex on tv dramas but not that much in movies and i'm not sure what to do with it i mean you know with the caveat that where we are movie theaters still are not open because of the pandemic but like it seems people lost their taste for like going out and seeing erotic thrillers or all those genres that used to be popular well erotic thrillers were really big on tv in the 90s skidamax and stuff like that you used to have stuff like basic instinct 
uh, like semi-regularly in theaters. Um, like, like there used to be a lot of sex and nudity in movies, but then people seem to suddenly get uncomfortable with that, but they are very comfortable watching it at home, like in their bed while Showtime is playing or whatever. Well, what you're trying to say is that the next level, bring back porno chic. Let's get used to watching people humping on screen for long periods of time with the crowd. Yeah, let's, let's all do that. Wait, did you sit in an audience at TIFF watching Gaspar Noe's uh, Love in 3D? I did see Love at TIFF, as a matter of fact, and, um... I don't remember a lot about that experience. I think, actually, my memory is that I, I feel like I kind of got used to it pretty quickly. I mean, there's there's so much sex in that movie that it's hard to, like, you know, sustain a two and a half hour runtime being like, oh, this is so awkward. I would also say that, like, blockbuster wise, the reason there's no sex is because the people that are in charge, you know, they were brought up where sex was to be feared. And now they want to hit something in all quadrants. And oh, my God, all these identities out there terrifies them. So they'd rather just make it sexless. But violence is OK. That's not a big issue. Oh, Also, you can't have sex and have the movie be released in China, which is a huge market. Oh, too. my God, that Chinese market. It's the worst. So uh, thank you very much for your letter. I hope that you follow every instruction that we said to the letter, like the Bible, and your kid will come up uh, completely normal. Uh, I just, and make sure to show them the Three Stooges. That's very important. Well, I mean, that's the good kind of violence. And in fact, that's the kind of violence that your kid should yeah. mimic. Oh, no. You don't want to see the Three Stooges war. <laughs> your kid should be poking his friends in the eye, should be ripping out huge clumps of his other friend's hair. <laughs> Picking up a ladder and carrying it over his shoulder and then abruptly turning and then whacking his two friends in the head. And I think that it's also important because then he'll learn how much it hurts and he'll watch the Three Stooges through a different lens as more of a like Michael Haneke style cinema of cruelty. <laughs> so our next letter is from Robert Paquez. I apologize if I said your last name incorrectly. I just wanted to drop you guys a little message letting you know that I absolutely love your podcast. Well, thank you. I discovered by way of Golden Ninja Video when an Orson Welles site I follow posted about the other side of Gary Graver. Yes! <laughs> On the podcast side of things, I am happy and thoroughly impressed with the wide scope and depth of movie subjects you cover, from classics to contemporary, uh, from all over the world. In particularly, I have a big fan of the Hong Kong film personalities and filmographies you have done your podcast on. Every once in a while, I will come across someone covering Wong Kar Wai and Chor Hark, and they may mention Lark Har Lung, but never someone like Herman Yao or Ann Hoy. As someone who's seen a lot of Hong Kong cinema, you guys really do know what you are talking about, minus some pronunciations here and there. And it's been a joy to go through your back catalog and catch up. Well, thank you. If I may, I do have a few humble suggestions. I know you have mentioned Johnny Toe before, but he is ripe for a full-on podcast. He has a lot of critical fame outside of Hong Kong, but it is a name not many people recognize. Well, you know what? And this is not your fault. We have done an episode on Johnny Toe many, many moons ago. We did. I almost forgot that. But you know what? I feel like, yeah, we could return to it. That there's probably a lot more to talk about because that was an early on episode. And we have 250 plus episodes that sometimes are not that easy to search. So. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, yeah. And Ying Biu would be an interesting subject. The most skilled of the Seven Little Fortunes, but he never quite reached absolute stardom. In any event, keep up the great work. All the best, Rob. Uh, I love it when people send us e letters being like, man, you guys, you know your Hong Kong cinema stuff, which is always a plus. That in pornography is usually what we get emails about. Yeah, we've covered the market on those. What are some other Hong Kong people we should do episodes on? I mean, Yung Biu is really fun. I don't know if he has that much of an artistic statement just because he did seem kind of like a cog in those machines, but he did do a lot of stuff that I really enjoyed. And he is the underdog of the three brothers that include Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and him. Uh, I mean, we've definitely talked about people like Chang Che. He, 
him and his vast filmography. As far as like Hong Kong artists, hmm. You know, I don't think we've done a full episode on Wong Jing, have we? No, we haven't. And you know what would be really fun to tackle? The Hoi brothers. Oh, yeah, because they're the big Hong Kong comedians of their day. And Hong Kong comedy notoriously has a hard time translating, a hard time making it across the Pacific. So I would be curious to see what like the private eyes is like. I watch them. They're very funny. They're very like goofy and gag based or <laughs> as uh, my pal peter said when we were watching them this is very boomer humor and he did mean that in like a negative sense <laughs> that it's like from a bygone era i remember when i was like a teen and i was watching a lot of the stephen chow movies and i was, I was having kind of a hard time with them at that age I, I just couldn't really get on their wavelength but i feel like now i'm much more like oh man speaking of an older episode listen to our stephen chow one where will is not impressed well actually i don't think that's true i actually think like I think you're misremembering that episode. I think I I said what I just said now, but like Chow was someone who really grew on me over time. It, you're just remembering it that way because you worship Stephen Chow. You love him. No, I remember because the only time in this podcast history I went in and recorded a part in the main episode, re-recorded a part, because I was so taken aback by your reaction that I was caught flummoxed when you asked me, well, what are the funny ones then? Uh, did I say that? Because I, I mean, I love- Yeah, you did. That blows my mind because like I love Stephen Chow. I mean- you know, he he's incredibly funny. And I mean, I definitely love him more now than I did when I was a teen. Like when I was a teen, I had trouble getting on the wavelength of that kind of like really silly humor. But uh, but now I love that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Especially that we don't have it anymore either. It's gone. Stephen Chow will never make another funny movie, it seems. Yeah, it's too bad. Although, man, there's one scene from The Mermaid that I still think about. Y- you know the one I'm talking about. Well, there's actually two good scenes. There's one where someone is hiding in a, in a room, which is classic Chow bits. And there's also one where uh, a squid man has to cook himself up. That is so funny. And uh, there's funny stuff throughout that movie, honestly, but that scene in particular is a Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think the problem is, and a lot of people have talked about Stephen Chow in this way before, that like he got too popular. He also didn't have the triads breathing down his neck anymore, forcing him to make films. So, you know, he became a Mike Myers of Hong Kong, overthinking things. Yeah, there is a feeling of some of those 90s ones where it's just like, it looks like they're making it up on the spot, basically. I mean, they probably are, yeah. And I'll think about other Hong Kong artists that we could tackle because, yeah, I love it. I feel that there's probably a whole bunch of other filmmakers. I mean, how have we not done a Wang Jing episode? I'm forgetting that we did one. You love Wang Jing. Uh... I love Wang Jing. Speaking of triad-backed filmmakers, woo boy. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for the letter. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Oh, well, speaking of stuff from childhood, sp- speaking of stuff that I used to watch a lot as a boy and my opinion has somewhat evolved on, Super Mario Brothers. Yes, this has been voted in by the Patreon subscribers. And so we watched it again, did a deep dive into Super Mario Brothers, a film I don't like very much, but somebody else loves. Who is it? You'll have to tune into the episode. One of the two hosts really enjoys Super Mario Brothers. At uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash the import cinema club. $5, you'll get that episode in the whole back catalog. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we will be looking at a genre. We will be looking at spaghetti westerns. Now, this is a topic that Will wanted to do, and I think it's an interesting way to tackle it, because you think it's very vast, and do you feel you have a handle on, like, what spaghetti westerns are beyond Sergio Leone or Sergio Corbucci, which we did do an episode on? Actually, no, not really. I mean, I know Sergio Leone's filmography very well. I know uh, I know quite a bit of Sergio Corbucci's filmography, but those two filmmakers loom so large. Their, their work 
collectively, I think, comprises about of like 90% of the public's understanding and, and most cinephiles' understanding of spaghetti westerns. But there's so much other stuff, including a lot of stuff that I've just never seen. So I think that we talked about that you wanted to watch Cutthroats 9, which maybe people listening are like, wait a minute, that's not a spaghetti western, because technically it's a Spanish western, but it's qualified as a spaghetti western it came around that era an ultra violent spaghetti and i'm beyond that i'm kind of up for anything like what are some of the ones that you think we should watch well it's tough because i want to hit like all the beats that would cover like the wide gamut i think we need to do a comedy one because that was the death of the spaghetti but they were incredibly popular like they call me trinity the terrence hill bud spencer film sure yeah let's do that i want to talk about like a whole bunch of them that hit different points like i said because there are many spaghetti westerns and a lot of them very similar to each other Anthony Steffen huh that guy looks kind of like Clint Eastwood there's a reason for that so that's what we'll be doing next week and until then my name is Justin Nicklew I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening hello Justin here just want to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers who include Malia Obama Kyler Bates Solomon Fong KL Felix Dembinski and Matt H thank you very much for becoming subscribers we could not do it without you and we now return to our regular scheduled programming. Will, I recently saw you saw Alex Ross Perry's Listen Up Philip again, a favorite of mine. Did you enjoy it as much as we when we talked about him many, many moons ago? I think we tackled the color wheel, right? Yeah, uh, we, maybe we talked about the first two movies. We did a Patreon episode where we talked about Alex Ross Perry, like really early on, and we were both very excited for it. Oh, him. yeah. Oh, the heights that he will hit. But yeah, I hadn't seen Listen Up Philip, his 2014 movie, in quite a while, and I watched it. Last week, sort of with some trepidation, thinking that maybe it wouldn't hold up for me. Um, but I thought it was fantastic. And I watched The Color Wheel again recently, too, which is the one that kind of put him on the map. And I thought that one was fantastic, too. Oh, so good. Love uh, The Color Wheel and Listen Up Philip. And like, Listen Up Philip seems to be like almost like a. I mean, this is a big swing, but like a crimes and misdemeanor level of like what kind of filmmaker Alex Ross Perry could be that like all of his preoccupations you saw and just a couple of things he did before that reach fruition right away with his second feature film. Eh, third, if you want to be technical. I think that's a good comparison. For those who haven't seen it, it has Jason Schwartzman in it as an arrogant young writer uh, named Philip. Uh, who has this deteriorating relationship with his long-suffering, very patient girlfriend, played by Elizabeth Moss, and he is suddenly, out of the blue, befriended by his favorite author, his greatest creative inspiration, played by Jonathan Price, who is a Philip Roth-type character. And the movie sees him, essentially, as he is ascending literary heights, closing the door on human connection and barreling down the path of becoming the next Philip Roth in in every sense of the term. Have you ever read much Philip Roth? Well, actually, I'm currently midway through reading The Human Stain because this movie kind of whetted my appetite for some Philip Roth. But I've read like maybe a half dozen Philip Roth books. <laughs> I would like to read the books of this broken man. Yeah, actually, that was kind of, that was kind of my reaction. Maybe I was the wrong takeaway from the movie. But <laughs> You're like, Philip, that could be me. I mean, everybody knows a Philip in their life right will maybe perhaps you look in the mirror and you see one staring back well it was great to watch listen up philip again because i definitely like watching this movie i think i am less like philip than i was when i first watched it and i think that this movie i love it it's so great and after this movie you can consciously see alex ross perry made a change that he doesn't want to make funny films anymore and oh man that sucks i mean with those first two 
I mean, technically the second and third, the color wheel and listen up, Philip. It really looked like he was becoming the modern day Brooklyn Woody Allen. Uh, and I would have kind of liked to see him continue to go down that direction. As a filmmaker myself, not at the level of Alex Ross Berry in the slightest, I can understand his need to kind of do different stuff. But I think that there is a place where he could have made films that are still funny, that still have that acidic tone, but also tackle different genres and different styles. And instead, he just went in the opposite direction. I appreciate Queen of Earth. I don't think it works in the way that he wants it to work, though. His follow-up was Elizabeth Moth, which is a repulsion-style kind of like psychodrama. Oh, but that one he made after Golden Exits. Oh, man. where Did we see it together? Or I think we were in the same theater. Yeah, we were at that screening at the light box. We get it, Alex. You want to be Eric Romer. <laughs> yeah, because it was sort of a return to the style of Listen Up, Philip, a little bit, but with no jokes. <laughs> what? And everybody is talking in this like really pretentious... I I mean, I guess it's his interiors, you could say, but uh, not as good as interiors, frankly. When is he going to make his Stardust Memories where people are like, I liked your earlier funnier ones? Well, first he has to become famous. That's right. I don't. Can that happen at any point? Like where he is now, the way that he's gone, like he's become kind of a Hollywood screenwriter, having uh, written such classics as the Christopher Robin movie. Wait, is he credited on it? I'm looking here. Yep, he, he is. is credited. Yeah, I watched that movie last week. Very good. Um, but yeah, listen up, Philip. It definitely uh, brought back the old feelings, and it's like, well, maybe he'll only ever make two movies that I really like a lot, but that that's fine it's like woody allen didn't have that high a batting average either frankly but he he, he had enough home runs that it kind I of mean, i enjoyed her smell as well but again if there were just i don't know like a little bit of humanity through some jokes which he seems to be very good at but there's a conscious decision that he doesn't want to make those type of movies i feel like somebody maybe said an offhanded comment at a party and it's haunted him ever since like yeah you know you make movies but they're funny movies, like not real, real movies. And he's been trying to prove that differently since My then. only problem with her smell is that it's unwatchable. The first three fifths of the movie where it's all like at that fever pitch and it's so intense. And Elizabeth Moss is giving that like, you know, turned up to 11 intense performance. I mean, there's a lot to admire about the filmmaking, but I just hated watching it i hated being in that space <laughs> alex ross perry's leaning back in his chair and he's like then i did what i wanted yeah, to do i mean good job i guess <laughs> <laughs> but make me laugh we preferred your earlier funny ones oh one more thing about listen up philip the relationship between jason schwartzman and jonathan price the kind of like toxic mentor mentee relationship that they have is so convincing and it's so textured like there's there's a part midway through where jonathan price has like an older novelist friend over like i don't know maybe like a norman mailer type or whatever and he gives his older novelist friend the really good scotch and he gives philip the less good scotch and then Towards the very end of the movie, just in a really offhanded moment, he pours Philip another glass of scotch and he says, by the way, this is the 58. Like, finally, Philip has ascended to the realm of being worthy of the good. But this guy's a loser. Nobody likes him. Why do you want to be this guy? I know. And that, and that's what's so funny about it. It's like this totally meaningless honorific um, from somebody who is so is so petty that he has to introduce the honorific in the first place. But you saw reflections of your own life in that kind of stuff or people that you do know. We won't name any names. 
things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't hit so hard if I didn't identify with it. Yeah, I don't see any of that in my own life because I am a shut-in who has no mentors or any of those figures. I mean, okay, this is this is the thing. It's like people listening to this prod- podcast probably think you're the nice one. But, you you know, you, as you say, you're a shut-in. You don't like people. I just, uh, no, I love people. I don't like social structures or being forced to go to parties while you love parties. I do. You love like five people. Yes, that's what I like. Because I don't need to, I don't want to have to impress anybody else, or I don't even care what they think, so why do I have to go to these things? I mean, look, ultimately, I probably only have five friends now, too, after the pandemic. (laughs) I I see no acquaintances anymore. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think, I have acquaintances, or people that know who I am, but yeah. Not anymore, not after the last year. (laughs) That's true. That you're going to go and you're like, who are these people? But yeah, because I never would go to stuff, just because, I don't know, man, I think that it all comes from growing up in a French small town through my developing years from like junior high to the end of high school where I didn't want to be there didn't want to hang out with anybody and that just continued onward when I moved into my own life where I would go I don't need to follow these social structures because I don't know these people it doesn't really matter to me so well some of us just like seeing people some of us just 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 like people yeah I'd rather just hang out and like play a game or <laughs> with friends <laughs> fair enough <laughs> 